don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, gendered violence in bathrooms, streets, and prisons. With Sophia Sewell. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Sophia Sewell, who is uh, just a recent graduate uh, from a gender and sexuality uh, department at Brown University in Providence. Uh, and uh, she's, uh, she's so much uh, close to be, uh, she's so much recently graduated that uh, we're, we're recording this, uh, this conversation uh, two hours before the ceremony of graduation. <laughs> uh, hello, hello, Sophia. Hi. <laughs> so, thank you very much for taking the time right before this ceremony. It's been, it's yeah, been of course. Uh, a little bit of logistics to make it happen, but we did. <laughs> Definitely. So that's, that's fantastic. We're here. And uh, yeah, and uh, I didn't say, but you'll, you'll be heading soon to Amsterdam to, for, uh, for uh, your beginning of professional life. <laughs> the next adventure. Yeah, yeah. next adventures. Um, so something else that I should say about you is that you're the, the co-editor-in-chief uh, of uh, the uh, publication, zine, and blog, uh, Blue Stockings, uh, that is a, a, a public, I mean, uh, so using those mediums to uh, gather some uh, feminist uh, uh, text and uh, thoughts and research, uh, along with uh, Janelle Adams, Lily Gutterman, and Anne Kremen. Uh, maybe to start this conversation, uh, would you mind uh, telling us a little bit more about Blue Stockings? The publication just came out. Uh, I was yeah. happy to find it in, in Providence in the first cafe I stepped in. That's so great. Which cafe were you in, by the way? Uh, was it there another Blue something? No. Mm, blue State, yes. Yeah, yeah, blue State. <laughs> That's my favorite. Yeah, um, yeah Blue Stockings was, was started a few years ago um, out of an organization that me and my friend kind of restarted, Feminists at Brown. Um, and it started just as a print magazine, a semesterly print magazine. Um, and then I think about a semester later, a blog evolved. And the zine, I think, has always been a part of it as well. Um, and the idea, I think, originated because there wasn't a feminist publication on Brown's campus. We have a lot of different publications, but there was no um, platform for these kinds of like modes of expression or thought specifically. And so um, the name Blue Stockings you, or the term blue stockings, I think, was like a derogatory term for women who were intellectual or academic, and so it's kind of trying to reclaim that. But I don't really think of blue stockings as necessarily super academic. I mean, we have a lot of different kinds of texts and a, different, a lot of different ways of approaching material and experience represented in the magazine. Um, yeah, I think this issue is really a step forward. Um, it has really like a super diverse collection of, of texts, and I'm really, really excited about it. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's, there's some uh, there's some uh, poems, there's some drawings, there's some essays, yeah. some short essays, and uh... yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of genres. And I think what feels important to me about having also um, a blog and a zine is that we're not trying to create a hierarchy of expression necessarily, because I think it's very easy to legitimate text over different forms of expression, and also to legitimate um, like print publications over things that are online. Um, to see it as like more serious because it's material, and so having the different mediums, I think, allows us to like approach these issues differently, but also to say that there's not one right way or best way of like presenting these ideas. Okay, and I, 
I even uh, add add to the content of uh, of this uh, publication of Blue Stockings that you you had a, an interview with a friend of Phenobalist, uh, Mimiti Inuen. So I, I highly recommend uh, reading uh, uh, the the entire publication and the blog. Um, so today we're going to talk about um, uh, space and gender and uh, several kind of space, but uh, uh, like the street, the bathroom, the prison. But um, that uh, all have in common to um, unfold on, upon uh, non-normative bodies or a certain form of violence, and uh, that's something that you've been uh, researching uh, um, uh, for for uh, some time now, and um, um, so we're going to try to to unfold that together. And uh, maybe the first space that um, I think you were eager to speak about because it's it's. Uh, quite literally and semiotically uh, gendered, which is the, the, the space of, uh, of, the, of the bathrooms. Uh, and um, so could you, could you tell us a little bit how you articulate uh, this space with, uh, with this uh, uh, violence? Uh, on mm, definitely. Um, well, I think it's important to start the convers- this particular conversation by saying that I'm a cisgender feminine presenting person. So for me to speak about this issue already has a certain kind of like power dynamic um so i'm definitely not trying to speak on behalf of anyone else's experiences but more like from my own privilege because across the hall from us there's um a bathroom with it has like the the female sign there's one with the male sign and then there's one gender neutral bathroom Um, actually we we have one right now behind us mm -hmm. (laughs) yep um and something that i'm guilty of is sometimes because the gender-neutral bathroom is single stall, so there's just you go in, you lock the door, and no one else can come in, and the other two are multiple-stall bathrooms. And I've been guilty of wanting to go into the gender-neutral bathroom when I want just a bit more privacy. And if the door is locked, if someone's in there, I can just walk into the woman's bathroom. I have that option and that flexibility. Um, so I think I think about violence in terms of the violence like enacted on like non people with like non-normative gender presentations in relation to the bathroom in two ways. In terms of having to, when there's not a gender-neutral option especially, um, like having to stand in front of those doors and like not know like which would be safer necessarily and also to have to make that decision between two binary options which might not represent someone's identity at all. To have to um, negotiate that for something as simple as having to go to the bathroom, um, I think that's one form of violence. And then the physical violence that can be enacted on someone when someone sees their presence as a threat. Um, so I think it operates on two levels, one a bit more symbolically and one very materially. Um, so that's what I think about when I'm thinking about bathrooms. Um, but I also think it's interesting in terms of um, the arguments against gender-neutral bathrooms. Um, some people say, well, you know, as a woman, I wouldn't feel safe going to a gender-neutral bathroom if there's men in there, um, which I think is... A disappointing argument to hear because then you're saying that the safety of cisgender women is more important than the safety of trans people or non-normative um, people of non-normative gender presentations. Um, so, yeah, and something else I've been thinking about is in terms of the different kinds of violence in the different gendered bathrooms that might occur. Um, from accounts I've read like uh, Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg, which is what I just finished, um, as well as some texts by like some feminist academics. It seems like um, 
like Judith Halberstam, Jack Halberstam is someone I'm thinking about. It seems like uh, women are much more interested in policing each other's gender and will be much more likely to say something to someone that they think might not quote-unquote be a woman um, or present femininely enough, um, which I think is interesting, and I think that is kind of a product of feeling threatened and feeling like a potential victim as a cis woman from someone who doesn't identify as a woman. Um, And then in the men's bathrooms, it seems like the risk of physical violence is higher. Um, So I think that the way in which people construct their own genders and in relation to each other in the different bathrooms is necessarily different because of how um, different genders are socialized, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, I suppose that there... there, um the very fact of op- opening the, opening the door with uh, this little uh, logo, this little semiotic right. uh, 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 that is uh, inscribed on each of those doors, and whatever it might be, sometimes it's trying to be humorous, or sometimes it's it's a little bit more neutral, but it's far from neutral, obviously. And uh, so I think when when we speak about the performity performativity mm. of of gender, the fact of opening this door is somehow sort of uh, uh, claiming I am this it, like. This is what I am. I match with this sign. Like I'm the, that's a signifier. I'm the signified kind of thing. And it's interesting because gender, the gender binary. I feel like there's like very strict kind of rules or expectations or like ways in which gender is produced that seems to have a very specific kind of outline. For example, like what we see on the doors: men wear pants, girls wear skirts. But the only way that gender can maintain itself is if it's if actually the restrictions are wide enough to allow. A diverse group of people to operate in it because no one is, no one is um, the hegemonic man or the hegemonic woman. No one meets those expectations. So gender is something that is constantly failing, but that's the only way in which it can maintain itself. So there's this discrepancy between what everyone upholds as, you know, what a woman is and what a man is, but no one actually meets that. But that's kind of what gender policing is. It's mm-hmm. saying you're not a woman as I've been taught a woman is. And that threatens me because, you know, gender can only be this one thing. And I see you're not that. So you're a threat to that whole order. And people, I think that's what people are responding to, the, fr- the fragility of gender. Um, people don't like seeing that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could not agree more with uh, what, what you just said about the fact that uh, nobody exactly meets the, the norm, which mm-hmm. is the, the paradox of the norm, because when mm-hmm. we talk about the norm, we're supposed, uh, uh, the, the kind of common image we had of the norm is, is that uh, that of the biggest number, which obviously mm-hmm. is, not, is not that, but so there's, there's this, this uh, very paradoxical uh, tension between the fact that uh, it's supposed to describe as many, as many bodies as possible, but ultimately it describes no one. Mm-hmm. It only exactly. describes degrees of separation from the norm because obviously some bodies are way closer to the norm than some others so yeah i think when we start to think in terms of intensity rather than in terms of a sense that's probably a, a good first step oh, into yeah that's an interesting mm-hmm. articulation of it i like that yeah um so uh unfortunately there the bathrooms are not the only space where uh, uh gender uh, applies itself uh that systematically, um, and uh, and to some extent, we can very much argue that uh, every space we know is very much uh, affected by this. But uh, I think something else that you were inclined to speak about is uh, is uh, the domain of the street. 
And maybe to give a little bit of introduction within this conversation, I, I, I have to say that, uh, um, for example, when, I, when I'm thinking of street and, and violence, mm-hmm. I'm immediately going to history and like 19th century Paris, mm-hmm. the barricades, mm-hmm. and somehow <laughs> it's it's a very it's I um I I feel that as very interesting it is, and I'm, I'm passionate by this, those those topics. It is very much a privileged position to see violence mm. of in the streets in such an explicit uh, war way, right. whereas yeah. some bodies are con- continuously in a situation of war, especially at night, yeah, uh, exactly. within within the within the streets. So, uh, depending on the bodies that you are, you do not perceive the street in the same way. So, uh, I think we should. Uh, we should be careful. Uh, I mean, especially people like me uh, should be careful in not in not reducing this violence to the to its most uh, uh, historical forms. I suppose. Mm. But could you tell us more about the this the, yeah. the domain of the street? Yeah, definitely. I think. Well, I think a problem with also how people talk about violence on the street um, now, like, and even within feminist circles, is that there tends to be a focus on the harassment of. Um, cisgender feminine presenting women um, as being harassed and being catcalled um, and that's something I've experienced and I don't like it and I wish I didn't have to deal with that and I wish I could um, enter public space without being reminded that as someone who identifies as a woman it doesn't belong to me because that's essentially what these catcalls are it's not of course a genuine compliment but reminding me that um, this is not my territory but I think the problem with focusing on that um, is that it ignores the fact that people with non-normative gender presentations also receive a lot of harassment and often with um, often like even less veiled like I would never interpret a cat call as a compliment but um, at least sometimes it's like somewhat friendly in nature whereas um, the things that um, some people I know have been called um, the kind of like threats they've received um, that is something that we really have to consider when we're talking about the street, talking about violence, talking about how people engage with it. Because again, um, people see someone who doesn't fall within the gender binary and they're just, they're threatened by that. Because I think gender, binary gender presentation is like how we recognize humans as humans. It's kind of like the first marker to seeing someone as like a legible subject. And if I look at someone and I can't tell um, what they are, um, then that makes me that renders me unable to know how to engage with them because the way we engage with people is so gendered so to see someone in a public space whether it's the street or the bathroom and um not be able to put them in one of these binary categories it makes people so deeply uncomfortable that they often respond with violence um and yeah and so and race is obviously a really large part of that picture also with the bathroom because um for example if someone um walks into a women's bathroom, but they um, identify in a more masculine, they present in a more masculine way, how a person might respond to a white masculine presenting person in the women's bathroom and a black masculine presenting person in the women's bathroom is going to be very different because we're taught to see um, black masculine people as sexual predators and aggressors always. Um, So that's always something... Yeah, all these layers, you have to really try, even though it can be very difficult to look at them like holistically and together. Um, 
Like something I'm thinking about is C.C. McDonald. Did you hear about yeah, her case? Yeah, but, but um, uh, maybe many of our listeners are not from the U.S., so you, you might right. want to even uh, recount her story. Definitely. Um, she was walking with a group of friends, I think this was in 2012. 2011, um, okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and they were walking past a bar, and there were two women and a man, outside, and a man standing outside um, who started calling them all kinds of slurs and using a lot of really hateful speech, uh, racial slurs, um, slurs about their gender. Um, and a fight broke out. I think one of them, one of the women threw a glass bottle towards Cece and her friends, and Cece is a black trans woman, and she was with um, a group of other black people. Um, and a fight broke out, and in the end, Cece was sentenced 41 months in prison, and she was released. Um, she didn't serve that full-time, I think, a lot due to the pretty extensive activism that was happening around her case. Um, but, yeah, despite the fact, despite what to me seemed like the very obvious um, roles of instigator and victim, um, she was the one who um, had the harsher sentence, and she was put in a men's prison, um, in a men's uh, correctional facility. And so I think the way... I think, to me, it's always impossible to separate... Um, The, senten the sentencing that someone receives for something and their race, because in the U.S. we just have such a long and violent and ugly history of um, sentencing people of color to much harsher um, punishments. I mean, that's why for crack, for example, which is a kind of lower form of cocaine, the sentences are much harsher, and it's because it's mostly people of color using crack and mostly white people using cocaine. Um, and also in terms of the history of... Um, like sexual assault cases, uh, black men have always gotten, are so much more likely to be put in prison um, for those cases, especially when the, when the person bringing the case is a white woman. So I think in Cece's case, being a black trans woman, she has a lot, she had a lot going against her. Um, and the fact that she was put in a male correctional facility is something that I think we really need to start dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, the idea this goes back to the bathroom, the idea that it wouldn't be safe for her as someone um, with a body that we gender as male to be with women, that um, someone's body and how it was assigned at birth is what makes them violent. Like, it wouldn't be safe for someone with a penis to be in a women's correctional facility because, you know, what are they going to do? Um, so again, privileging the safety of one group over, in this case, CC safety, because... Um, Trans people of color in prison, in my understanding, do not fare very well at all. So, again, it's a question of whose safety are we privileging, who are we assuming is violent, who are we assuming, um, who are we constructing as always already a victim, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And a similar thing that got refused to uh, Chelsea Manning as well. As, yeah, I was uh, just thinking about she, that. She was not accepted in a women facilities, correctional facilities. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's a quite literal uh, violence here that is... Uh, the, that is uh, the absolute reminder of what the norm has uh, uh, has uh, categorized you into mm -hmm. and that you cannot, you have no agency uh, whatsoever. No. On. I think even from the beginning of how we assign people genders at birth, I mean, that is a violent act to say, um, to put people, not just, not just to put something on their birth certificate, but to assign them like a role for life is what is happening there. And the fact that we gender bodies I think is a really big problem because we're saying in Chelsea Manning's case or Cece's case um, because these people have bodies that we say are male they are male 
but bodies are not inherently gender. Gender is something that we have constructed. So to say that um, a body has a gender is just not true, but mm-hmm. we continue to use that and perpetuate that, um, even at the degree of people's safety throughout their lives. And so that's just like this perpetual violence that literally begins at birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was there was this uh, uh, very moving moment uh, in uh, uh, a few months ago in the, in the news where you had this uh, uh, this journalist um, talking to Janet Mack, who who's, you've been uh, you've been following mm-hmm. I think quite quite closely as well. And this journalist was extremely aggressive in the way he wanted he wanted her to say, "I was born a boy." So oh, was, was like, this Piers Morgan? Probably, yeah. So he was so. like. Are you? Were you born a boy? Were you born a boy? And she mm-hmm. and she answered, "I was born a baby," which, which <laughs> yeah, I thought was, was yeah, it was great. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to to, to, to speak that much, but uh, um, uh, there's something extremely interesting with this uh, with this uh, kind of ceremonial of, of, of birth in how there's a uh, what what uh, Judy Butler would call an, an elocution happening, uh, which is mm. the, the verbal. Um, the disc- a discourse that enacts what it describes. So yes. when when the, when the the doctor you know or the nurse uh, takes a little baby and say oh it's a boy or oh it's a girl then, then it becomes it becomes a, a boy yeah. and it becomes a girl. But it has so. this illusion of being only an observation. Yeah, it's like oh I see this. This is how I'm taught to see this. Therefore I'm just describing mm-hmm. what I see. So it has this very kind of neutral facade. But it's exactly like mm-hmm. what you're saying. It's enacting an identity on someone. Which is which is when you when you really come to think about it is incredibly absurd because we could distinguish uh, 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 bodies between the size of their nose for example we, we, don't, we don't do that right? <laughs> right? You, you, would, you would have a little baby with a type of nose and be like oh that's this type of mm. human and mm-hmm. then another nose oh that's this type of human I mean th- thinking of it that way I think shows very much how yeah. how uh, absurd this, this, this yeah. categorization uh, Abs- yeah simultaneously absurd and kind of um arbitrary and also reflects our investment in like the heterosexual paradigm that like ensures reproduction or like Mm. privileging the heterosexual reproductive couple like we need these binary categories that come together and make babies um and i think the puzzle myth (laughs) yes exactly yeah um and i think that's also something always bring sorry bringing it back to the bathroom again that's something about the bathroom, because I think um, another thing about the about men's bathrooms historically is that they have sometimes served as sexual spaces, and so that's also um, like I'm thinking about um, like DC maybe in like the 40s or 50s, or there have been times when um, there weren't a lot of places for men to get together, and so spaces like um, bathhouses and public restrooms beca- and parks became places of, yeah, kind of like sexual um, sexual um, opportunity. Um, and so that's also a threat. That's also a threat to the, the kind of gender order put in place by binary bathrooms is that there's this opportunity for people to pass in terms of their gender and I'm using past kind of um, because that's a language that people use and not because I necessarily endorse it or think it describes everyone's experience. Um, so there's the gender thing, but then there's also the sexuality thing because we also want to assume or want to believe or understand that um, the people going to the women's bathrooms are straight women and therefore that that's a safe space for all these straight women because um, 
if there are people of different sexualities in there, that also introduces kind of a um, the possibility of violence, people might say, and save for the men's bathroom. Um, and yeah, the problem with that then is that um, not only that people are passing in the men's bathroom in terms of their sexuality, but also that it's a non-reproductive sexuality. Um, so I think gender, so I think sexuality to a degree also comes into play when we're thinking about um, what is being done when we have these binary gendered bathrooms, because there's also the assumption of heterosexuality, and that's what makes these, um, that's kind of what defines those spaces in people's minds as segregated and safe, is um, both in terms of gender and in terms of sexuality, I think. Mm-hmm. Um. Maybe to go back to the uh, the space of the street itself, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I know I know that you are, you're particularly interested in uh, in the conversation that uh, a tool like Twitter can uh, can uh, generate. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard about the French conversation about around those issues uh, with the hashtag safe safe dans la rue. Yeah, I saw that on your blog. Yeah. yeah. I was oh, about. oh yeah, right. Sorry, I sent you. I sent you <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe to, 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 to sum it up very very quickly for uh, people who, who don't necessarily read French, this uh, this hashtag uh, was um, um, generating a conversation about about uh, most mostly women were talking about their experience uh, in the in the in the street, especially at night, and talking about what a few magazines and newspaper have been called uh, tricks not to be afraid anymore things like composing a weapon with your keys in your in your mm. within your hands or things that had to do with the body uh, uh, directly and, and having a, a few women saying that they, they they try to look as ugly as possible because they think that it would uh, would reduce their their risk in the street but those journals and newspaper were were completely blind to the fact that whatever whatever advices might might go through this conversation, that was not the problem. The problem was the violence to begin right, with. Yeah. And so I, 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 I think there's, there's also within within those discourses there's also a very strong perpetuation of the statu quo by asking the wrong question and, and noting noting the wrong uh, hints like 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 those those uh, what what they've been calling tricks. Mm. And even a little bit further than that there's also um, This conversation, I should have started by that. This conversation started with a tweet um, uh, advising uh, uh, men to maybe at night when they're when they're walking alone or uh, behind or a woman alone to maybe j- just change the side, change mm-hmm. the sidewalk, cross the street. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see that many men were extremely offended by that, which. <laughs> yeah, it's quite ironic, mm-hmm. uh, but they were very offended because it meant that they were potentially perceived as uh, uh, mm. offenders, and uh, I'm willing to suspect that most of the men who were uh, offended were probably white, and therefore uh, mm. <laughs> were 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 uh, uh, yeah. I mean, they did not, could not possibly see themselves mm. as being perceived as a as a sexual offender. So. Uh, I mean, this is a conversation in in French and uh, on Twitter, but I mean, there's there's been there's been many others in English and in other languages. So maybe can, could you maybe tell us more about it and those yeah. kind of wrong. I mean, those those uh, uh, 
uh, ways of, of looking at things that just perpetrate yeah, the static definitely. world because of asking the wrong questions. Yeah, I think that's something that definitely came up um, after Trayvon Martin's shooting because you had a lot of, there was a lot of focus on the hoodie, which I think is something that Mimi has written about for your yeah. blog. Yeah. Um, and something that I found particular interest, particularly interesting was the fact that there were some um, like prominent black figures in the prominent figures in the black community who were saying, I'm forgetting the name of this one particular guy um, who was on some kind of talk show or the news or oh, yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, yeah, on and Fox he, news. yeah, oh, of course, that's not surprising at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he wasn't the only one saying, you know, well, if these young black men don't want to be targeted, then they shouldn't. They should pull up their pants. They shouldn't be wearing hoodies. You know, what can they expect? Um, and to say that you know people need to change their behavior in order to avoid violence is to just allow the violence to remain in place and mm-hmm. saying that there are some people who deserve it. Um, not that violence shouldn't be happening, but that there are some people who deserve it and some people who don't. Um, so I think that's another case of that happening, um, of allowing some, of allowing this, allowing the status quo to remain and allowing the structures to stay in place and saying that individuals need to adapt to these violent structures rather than there's anything about these structures that need to change. Um, And what else was I just thinking about? Oh, in terms of the tips, I saw something that was like 10 tips for men for like how not to be a rapist. And it was like, if you see a drunk girl at a party, don't put anything in her drink. Don't try to take advantage of her. If you're, you know, just like don't rape people was the basic tip. Instead of saying, women, this is what you can do to make yourself safer. It's like, why don't we tell people who are enacting the violence to maybe not do that? Like, why don't we like approach it from that end of the conversation instead if we really want things Mm -hmm. to stop? I think that's that's uh, that's something that you you when you start thinking about things that's that's something that really appear in how uh, things might um, should be looked at for what they retroactively uh, legitimize and mm. and I mean something mm-hmm. like something like those advice advices if you if you really call it that way and if you really uh, write an article like like many again like uh, a few uh, even uh, L magazine talking about those advices. What this means, if you read between the lines, is that if you do not follow those advices and you do uh, you do become the victim of a of a violent act, it means that you are uh, this violent act was somehow a little bit more legitim- legitimate that if, if mm-hmm. you were if you had been following the advices. So, yeah. so there's always a kind of retroactive legitimacy legitimacy like that. And I think what those discourses also do is delegitimize people's choices. Um, so by saying, um, you know, why were you wearing a hoodie? Well, you know, if you wanna be able to use a bathroom safely, then why don't you like try to look a bit more feminine? Why were you wearing a short skirt? It assumes that people don't do things for a certain reason that they would only do things that people do things to provoke rather than maybe dressing a certain way is just really part of my identity maybe um yeah maybe wearing a hoodie wearing my pants low um that has certain um that has a certain meaning for me and so to deny people you know their right to self-expression and say that if you express yourself that way that means that you're only doing it for provocation and that therefore you deserve violence is to really limit how people can identify and present themselves which again would is a form of violence so there's like the material violence on the end and then there's also the kind of delegitimizing of how people want to move through and engage with the world mm-hmm. and they should be able to do that safely 
Yeah, I suppose something that needs to be reminded all the time is just that um, uh, sexual assault cannot in any way, because it would be uh, a counter-definition of it, it it cannot in any way have uh, attenuating circumstances. Because it is, it is by definition, the absolute power of a body over another. Mm. So anything that would be used as a sort of legitimate, as an effort to legitimize uh, uh, some some uh, circumstances is is uh, should very must be uh, uh, doomed to fail. Because mm. and I, and I think uh, states in uh, the U.S. like Georgia and Alabama still have um, still have their their. Um, the things that are victim wear as as a, as part of uh, as part of evidence in a, in a sexual uh, se- sexual uh, I, trials. Know, I don't I, think it's been used yeah. for the for the last uh, twenty years, but it, it's still on the box. I, I yeah. think in in uh, the, the few research I've been doing, it seems like it's still like it's still active. So mm. this is, you cannot introduce such an evidence within a trial because it would it would very much deny the, the very definition of the crimes that is being judged. Yeah, that's a really articulate way of putting it, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of sexual assault, something that's happening on Brown's Un- Brown University's campus right now, I don't know if you've been following it a bit, but um, on... And Columbia. Yeah, actually, mm-hmm. uh, quite a few schools. Um, on April 22nd, there's a student, um, I always forget if her name is pronounced Lena or Lena um, Sklove, who gave a press conference in front of the Van Winkle gates, which are these very iconic gates, which tomorrow will be opened. Um, because when you arrive at Brown, you walk through the gates, and then when you leave Brown, when you graduate, you walk back through the gates, and that's the only times that they're open. So very iconic for Brown. Um, definitely like a symbol of its like tradition and history. Um, she gave a press conference about the fact that she was um, strangled and raped by someone on campus. Um, by a former friend. Uh, He was found guilty by Brown um, of the charges, and he was only suspended for a semester. That was his punishment. And he was supposed to return in the fall when she's also supposed to return, and that's kind of what um, instigated her or led her to give this press conference in terms of saying, I can't be, I can't move safely through this space if my rapist is allowed back on campus. Why is he allowed back on campus? This is absurd. This is completely unfair. And of course she's right. Um, And something that I've been thinking about or something that's come up in these conversations is the fact that um, there is this kind of separate justice system on universities. They kind of like to keep things within closed doors. So something... um, Sex and military. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So something that's come up is that um, the... It came out that um, Brown doesn't really encourage students to go to Providence Police when something happens, and they encourage students to report it to the university. Um, And the Providence Police were really upset when they found out about that because it kind of allows for there to be two separate justice systems in the same place. And I think the fact also that Brown is literally on a hill, it kind of creates a strange dynamic that kind of reproduces the already existing class dynamics in terms of we're up here on this hill, this Ivy League institution, we're going to handle things in-house and the rest of the city below the hill, you know, that's its own thing. Um, So I think in terms of, yeah, in terms of like which bodies would receive which punishments for which acts in which spaces is something I've been thinking about a lot lately and how we're creating these divisions between the campus and the rest of the city um, that allow yeah, allow for things like what happened with Lena to happen, um, even though, of course, it's not guaranteed that the Providence Police would have handled the case much better. Um, it does kind of create this division, um, this very elitist division between, um, yeah, between Brown and the rest of Providence, which um, is really unfortunate. But when you have an Ivy League institution like this, uh, it's, yeah, 
a bit predictable also. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm very glad that you brought the the idea of the hill in the inner city that, that has some uh, political uh, consequences because that's, uh, that's something that I'm always uh, trying to research about. Mm. Uh, Sophia, thank you so much. You need to run to your ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> so I do. We're going to leave it here, but uh, thank you for taking the time right before this uh, important event. And uh, Yeah, thanks so much for this opportunity. This was really great to talk to you. Thank you.